Well, may God bless the reading of his word to us today. My name is Kurt Buchanan. I'm on staff here at the church and have the privilege of sharing with you today. And hey, if you're joining us online, we are so glad that you're here and with us. We're in a series uh, going through the book of Romans. And uh, so if you're looking for a new series to be uh, reading through, uh, maybe you do regular devotions or use uh, maybe version uh, that Bible app for certain plans. If you're looking for one, uh, why not Romans? That's what we're going to be looking at over the next uh, little while here at Hillcrest. Now, this first block of our series is called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And if you're counting, if last week was The Good, this week is The Bad. But don't worry. Uh, next week is the ugly, so I'm glad I'm not preaching that one. Okay, um, we're going to be looking at Romans, so let's, let's take a look at a few things that we need to know about this letter as we're taking a look at all of this. So first, there's uh, kind of three groups of people to keep in mind as we head into the book of Romans. There are the Jewish Christians in Rome, and there are the Gentile Christians in Rome, again, participating in the church in Rome. And then there are the Gentiles beyond Rome that Paul wants to reach with the gospel using Rome as kind of a missions base. Again, it was kind of the center of the world at that time. Uh, And so Paul wants to reach beyond that uh, to reach other people with the gospel. Now, Paul hadn't started the church in Rome, so he needed to introduce himself and address, address the issues in the church in a different way than usual. Uh, So usually uh, Paul had started a church and he was regularly corresponding with them or had spent a number of months or years sometimes in these particular congregations. So, you know, things like Corinthians, there's several letters back and forth. In fact, you know, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is not the second letter that he sent. It's just the two of the copies that we have. There's maybe four or five different letters uh, that we know of that were sent back and forth. Um, Anyway, so he corresponded with these other churches, but in Rome, he didn't have that. Um, So as he's establishing this relationship with the church in Rome, uh, he's going to dig into some theology, again, because he wants to have a strong Roman church that he can launch his missions from. So the broad strokes, the big strokes of what the letter of Romans is all about, Paul wants to partner with a strong Roman church in order to reach more people with the gospel. And Steve launched us into that last week, and that's the good. And that sounds pretty good, right? But before Paul can partner with the Roman church, before the Roman church can be in a position of strength, before more people can be reached with the gospel, uh, there has to be some theological work done. They have to be on the same page. And so Paul, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, they need to have the same theological page in order to move forward from And that's why we have to come to terms with the bad and the ugly first. Okay, so our text from today nearly makes every person squirm. Did you feel a little bit of that this morning? As Evan is here reading the scriptures to us, people are kind of shrinking a little bit into their seats and kind of looking around nervously. Okay, there's a lot of hot topics in here, and we're going to go through some of them today. Here's the list of some of the hot topics. The wrath of God. God's revelation leading to people being without an excuse. The depravity of man or humankind. See, it's, 
it's funny, sometimes people get upset that oftentimes in the Bible they use the word man to mean mankind or humankind. In this case, it says the depravity of man, and sometimes the women are thinking, hey, we dodged that one. <laughs> but unfortunately, again, it's talking about humankind. There's idolatry in these few verses. There's God giving people over to their sin. There's human identity and human sexuality here. There's a long list of wickedness. There's even a celebration of evil. So Paul is writing this letter, remember, because he wants to make friends with people in Rome. (laughs) And this is what he starts with? (laughs) Yeah, how to win friends and influence people or how to make friends. What to to bring up at a party? Uh, This doesn't seem like quite the right thing. See, any of these topics could be, you know, a whole sermon series or at least a message, and we don't really have the time to dig into all of these, but I hope that as we go, I'll be able to be brief but clear as we go through these verses. But we've got a lot to get through, so let's dive in. Starting in verse 18, the wrath of God. Let's stop there. Uh, They feel like an obstacle course. I don't know if you're reading through here. Right, And not one of those kind of fun ones for kids, but kind of one of those you know, intense military training ones. You know, we're Navy SEALs, it's raining and cold and muddy. And, they've, you, know, and you, know, you start with the word the, and you hit wrath, and it's that big wall that somehow you're supposed to be able to get over. You, know, you and your team somehow, and it's a huge challenge right off the bat. So, wrath. Uh, if there was a... a, a you know, a test today on theological terms, many of you would be able to clearly say what love was, or mercy, or grace. Some of you would be able to say what salvation was, or even the atonement, or some other more advanced theological terms. But I think a lot of us struggle with the idea of a clear definition of what wrath is. Now, we don't have time to go into all of the misconceptions about what wrath is, or what some people believe it might be, because some of it, many would believe that it's a divine temper. It's a violent outburst from God. It's his vengeance. It suddenly flares up without warning or without just cause. You know, sometimes it's love and mercy with God, and other times it's the hammer of God. Some people think that they're always on thin ice with God. He's nice sometimes, and other times his fury descends on us. His wrath is some divine mood swing. But that's not how the scripture uses the term, the God of the Bible is not moody. Some would define wrath as anger, and again, for the most part, even if you're talking about that particular word, most people think that it should be dealt with, it should be managed, or done away with altogether. But the Bible actually never says that anger is a sin. Our desire for justice is anger at injustice. The best way, I think, to think of anger is that it's an extremely powerful force of energy that's brought about when something that we love is threatened. Uh, The Bible, again, speaking of anger in relationship to us, we're going to talk about that as well as anger as it relates to God. But Ephesians 4.26 says this, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. In the King James Version, it says, Be angry, yet do not sin. If you are energized with anger, you have to be sure to aim it at the right thing. 
Okay, that's in your anger. Do not sin. So it means you're supposed to do something with it, but not sin. (laughs) Aim it at the right thing. And I think this scripture says that we're supposed to have a plan for how you're going to use that energy and have that plan in place quickly. Okay, does that make sense? That's instruction to us. Okay, but again, there's a difference between us and God. You know, when we talk about our, how we respond in anger and how God responds in anger, those are two different things. For example, also, God is called a shepherd. He's not actually like a human shepherd in every way, but there are certain things that we can understand from a human shepherd that we can understand how God relates uh, to us. The same is true of father or son or any of the other kind of metaphors about God. He is not like how we are in this way. So how we deal with anger is not how God deals with um, anger. So anger is not a sin. But when we're powered up by anger, we often unleash it on the wrong thing. Uh, and in so doing, we often sin. Okay? That or we love the wrong thing, which again is the sin of idolatry. And we become angry when our idols are threatened. And idols are always threatened by God. Here's an example. When my kids are arguing about something and I'm peacefully reading on my couch, and the argument is kind of getting out of hand, and it's about to turn violent, the anger in me launches me off of my couch to deal with the situation. Because there's something that's at stake. I mean, they could end up hurting one another. Beyond just kind of the physical hurt that they might experience, they're also you know, in the midst of damaging their ongoing relationship with one another. And I hope that my kids can both be siblings and friends throughout their lifetime. Okay, so I'm responding. There's something that's at stake. There's something that's being threatened, and I'm energized to deal with it. However, rather than saying, love one another, and teaching them the biblical principles of patience, and and leading them through the gospel so that they can forgive each other and they can repent, I usually say, you're too loud. You're bugging me. Stop it. And instead, you know, I'm motivated by the anger that comes, but it's, it's really actually revealing maybe I just like things quiet. And so rather than the lesson being, hey, be patient with your brothers and sisters, love one another, be kind, they learn, you know, don't bug dad. And that's kind of the wrong thing, right? Again, it's either that I'm I'm, I'm motivated maybe for good things, like I don't want them to hurt each other, but I respond with, be quiet and go away, go do something else. And I don't actually take them to the right spot. Or that or it really reveals, again, that idol of I like things quiet, don't bug me, leave me alone, you know, be out of sight, out of mind. Okay. Most times, I think, when we think about wrath, we think of anger kind of getting out of hand, becoming vengeance, violent, destructive. It's an exponential force of anger. You know, it's not one person that's upset with another person. It's like a king unleashing an army because of an insult. You know, wrath is a nation destroyed over a personal offense. That's many times how we think of it or use it. I've heard it used in films and television, that kind of thing, in that way. But God's wrath is always tied to his righteous judgment. He sees all, he knows all, and he has perfect wisdom and understanding in order to act. And so God, in his righteous anger, is motivated to do something, and that's when his wrath is enacted. Okay? God's wrath is always justified. It is warranted. The wrath of God is that power that responds when what he loves is threatened. 
His wrath is always steady, controlled, righteous, calculated. It's this dispersal of God's power against evil, against sin. See, sin and death are what threaten us, ultimately. And we are what he loves. And so he unleashes his wrath against godlessness and the wickedness of people. And if you think about it, if you do believe that there is this God who created the whole universe, he has the right to wrath. After all, it's his reality. It's God's reality. See, we don't coexist with God in this reality. We exist within God's reality. It is perfectly designed with us in mind. And he is intimately and personally involved with all aspects of the universe. The Bible says that Jesus holds all things together. So when we reject him and we reject his design, we feel the wrath of God. I heard it explained this way. A fish is not meant for the beach. A fish is totally free in the water. But if a fish tries to live on the beach, they immediately feel the wrath. Now, not only do we live outside our design, we really hate the fact that God is the the designer and that we're not. We want this to be our reality. We want a God in our image who serves and worships us. I think when you often talk to people about the idea of God and wrath, they say, no, 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 I don't, I don't believe in that kind of a God. I believe in a God who loves everyone and he accepts people. And then you say, well, okay, okay I, under, I understand that, but what you've done is you've just made up your own God. <laughs> that's pretend, that's not the God that is revealed to us through the scripture. Many people create their own God to suit their own needs and desires But if we are to come to terms with the God of the Bible, we have to adjust our lives to him. And for the most part, we don't like that. In fact, we hate God because he is who he is. Later in the book of Romans, in chapter 5, verse 10, it says that we're enemies of God. It even says, you know, the natural mind is enmity or hatred. It is enmity. (laughs) They don't just have hatred, they are hatred. See, we don't just resist or disbelieve God, we hate him. Um, I think we see this in an interesting way um, in John 18. This is a description of Jesus with his disciples after kind of the Lord's Supper moment that we kind of celebrated here. They went from that Passover meal, Jesus heads off into a garden with his disciples, and there he is praying, take this cup from me. And as they're going in, um, we see a number of things about wrath. I think there's three things that you can see looking at this. God's wrath is warranted, it is controlled, and it is absorbed. This is uh, kind of verse three of John 18. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches Lanterns and weapons. So there you have Judas, the soldiers, the religious leaders. You have Jew and Gentile. 
You have kind of the blue-collar worker and the uh, religious elite, the cultural elite. You have pagans and people who are devoted to their faith. And they all come to arrest and crucify Jesus. They come with torches and weapons. And they, they have this hate for him. We have this hate for him. We reject him and his design. Again, the one time that God steps into our world, weak and vulnerable, humanity kills him. The whole range, irreligious, religious, rich, poor, different races. Again, you have Jew and Gentile here. They come for Jesus. His wrath is warranted. And uh, the next moment that happens here is that Jesus, knowing all, this is verse 4 of John 18, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And in our English translations, for you know, grammatical reasons, it says, I am he. But it's actually him saying, I am. Which is a powerful statement. It was the name of God. He is saying, Yahweh. He is saying, I am the great I am. You're coming from, for, you think you want to have just some guy from Nazareth, but who am I? I am. And what happens is, they all are thrown to the ground. I mean, these are Roman soldiers. You know, I don't, they have lived a pretty um, terrible life in that kind of line of work. They're rough people. And a Jewish carpenter, uh, uh, you know, a public speaker, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of tone of voice the guy uses. They wouldn't, be, they wouldn't flinch. But he's, they say, you know, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they all fall down. And it's this kind of peculiar moment. Like, well, what happened? And lots of people would just say, it's like a, just a little tiny bit of his glory got out. <laughs> and they couldn't stand. If, if you think that the wrath of God isn't precisely controlled, that his plan against evil isn't precise. I think this is a good way to see this, that he still comes in gentleness, right? And then, and then in, in all of the kerfuffle in the garden, Peter pulls out a sword, he's attacking people, and Jesus goes over to him and says, no, 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 no. This isn't going to be the way. There's going to be gentleness. And Jesus demonstrates this control, this willingness to lay his life down for us. See, it's not only the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, it's also his wrath. And so it's absorbed. Uh, Jesus in the garden, many of you know, as he's praying, he's praying about a cup, the cup of wrath. Uh, at that time, uh, the how you would carry out capital punishment for many people would be to put poison in a cup and they would drink it. They would take the poison into themselves and it would be the wrath carried out on them. And the cup of wrath that Jesus is referring to is the one that has been referred to all throughout the scripture, the wrath that was coming. See, ultimately, the wrath is not poured out on us, but Jesus himself takes it from us. He takes 
the cup. You know, he says to his disciples, can you take this cup? No, you can't. This is for me. I will take it. So he takes the cup. So the wrath of God is warranted. It is justified. But it is controlled. He is acting not out of um, impulse, but with intention. And as it, it's absorbed. He takes it into himself. It is warranted. It is controlled. And it is absorbed. Okay. We're only about three or four words into these verses, so we better keep moving. (laughs) The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. God's wrath is against evil. But guess what? He's revealing his wrath. He's giving us a heads up. He's trying to make us see. In the same way that he leads us to repentance through kindness, he's revealing his wrath so that we can process and think. He wants us to understand that he is Lord, that his design for us is the way to eternal abundant life. God's kindness leads us to repentance, but his wrath also leads us to repentance. If you think about the prodigal son, goes to his father and says, you know, will you divide the inheritance? Can I take my share now and I'm going to be out of here? How does the father respond? No, don't do that. That's shameful. How dare you? He lets him go. He loves him and he lets him go. God is revealing uh, his wrath uh, and, and inviting us to understand it. The prodigal son eventually comes to himself experiencing <laughs> kind of the fullness of the choices that he's made. And only then does he actually kind of wake up and come to his senses you know, there's a, a number of translations that say he, he came to himself. Suddenly he was present in mind. Okay. Um, God is revealing the wrath, but we suppress the truth by our wickedness. Sin makes you less perceptive to the truth. We lie to ourselves, and it actually works. We lie to ourselves, we suppress the truth, and the more that we embrace sin the more we suppress the truth. This is uh, verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Again, God is revealing himself to everyone. People often um, object to God's plan for salvation since it's so obscure and hidden. You know, thinking that knowledge about a Jewish carpenter from a couple of thousand years ago is the only way to gain access to eternal life and avoid hell. So what about all of those souls who in their lives, they live their lives in an environment where they will never know those details. They will never know the gospel as we know it. So here's the question. Is it possible to be saved only knowing God's eternal power and his divine nature? Yes. That's what without excuse is referring to. Even with those two things only as revealed by God are enough for someone to put their faith in God and to receive salvation. People who, (coughs) pardon me, People who try to understand our world, again, this is the idea that they can understand things from what have been made. 
Uh, people who try to understand our world by looking at what's made often find faith. And though many universities are still very anti-religious, that thrust is not coming from the people who are doing the work. In fact, many scientists are believers. As they're going through the details, they are awestruck by what they find, both in the macro and the micro, and they are drawn towards God. But though God reveals himself to us in many different ways, many refuse to worship him. This affects our mind and our emotions. Because of sin, we become less than we should be. We are less in every way. Verse 21, for although we know God, we knew God, they never glorified him or God or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. It affects us in our thinking and in our emotions. Verse 22 says this, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. And we sink into idolatry, and we end up enslaved to those idols. Verse 24 says this, Therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires, to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. See, as we repeatedly reject God and his design, we eventually reach the point where God changes tactics in reaching us. He tries to save us from all the consequences of our wickedness, but at a certain point, he gives us over to our sinful desires. He demonstrates mercy and kindness and grace, and grace, but if we don't respond to his kindness, he hopes that we will respond to his wrath. Again, I think the prodigal son uh, shows this so very clearly that the father just says, go. He loves him and he lets him go. And only when the son experiences all that he does on that path does he finally realize truly what he had when he could have his father and all his blessings. Again, human identity and sexuality come up here. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with one another and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Human identity and sexuality are prime indicators of rejecting God. And rejecting his design for the world, though they are not the only ones. See, rejecting God leads to the suppression of truth. It leads to exchanging the truth for a lie. The more we embrace sin, the darker things get for us, and that affects our identity and our sexuality. And I would say also, it is not just homosexuality, it affects our sexuality. Okay, but these are prime indicators. See, when God created humankind, he made us in his image. It says this in Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, I don't understand all of the complexity of human identity and sexuality. And we don't have time to go into all of that here today. But human identity and sexuality are so central to the image of God in us that it often becomes this indicator of our rejection of him and his design. See, we are all fallen 
It affects all of our identity and sexuality. We are all fallen in this area. I don't believe that Paul is singling out homosexuality as any different from any other sexual sin, but he is laying out the reality of what happens when people reject God and his design. We suppress the truth through sin. We exchange the truth for a lie. We lose sight of who we are, and it is destructive to us and to others around us. Verse 28 says this, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Eventually, our mind can't even process the truth. Eventually, we can't even act in in light of the truth. We become entirely enslaved to sin. Though our sexuality is a prime indicator of our sinfulness, there's a long list of wickedness yet to go. Just in case you thought you had escaped so far. They have become, this is verse 29, filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy. How many of you want a bigger house, a newer car, a new phone? How many of you want someone else's skill or talent? On this list is also murder and strife, deceit. (laughs) I listened to a podcast and they often had a segment, it was called Not Lying. And it was the ability to say something that was true but was also deceitful. Because someone would say, hey, can you make it to my party on Friday night? And the person would respond by saying, hey, who doesn't love a party? (laughs) So they didn't actually say they were going or that they'd like to. In fact, they probably intend not to. But they give the impression, it's deceit. Gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. It's starting to kind of sound like the internet, isn't it? If you don't think... (laughs) Humanity is depraved. See, internet. There's a celebration even of evil. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they do not, or they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. They celebrate evil. So now you have the bad news. But the bad news is so important to the gospel. See, some people reject the idea that God has wrath. They want a God who loves, who accepts everybody, no matter what. So what about Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Why did he die on the cross? Was he just expressing his love for us? If you were having a bonfire with a few close friends and one of your friends said, let me show you how I love you, and they threw themselves into the fire and died, would you say, behold how they loved me? (laughs) You'd think they, they went nuts, like they were on some kind of drug or something. That's not an expression of love. They're crazy. But if your house is on fire and you and your family are trapped inside, And a friend comes along, knowing the danger, 
comes in and one by one rescues each and every one of you, but then succumbs to the flames themselves, you would say, behold, how they love me. The bad news is important for the gospel. We need to understand what we are being saved from, how broken we really are. The wrath of God is being revealed. But it is warranted. It is controlled. And it is absorbed in Jesus. Now, if you've been experiencing, I'll invite the worship team to come back here now. If maybe you've experienced the kindness of God, maybe in the favor of his people walking amongst other believers or something, his kindness towards you, maybe you were drawn to him and you would like to give your life to Jesus, make him Lord and Savior. Maybe you're also experiencing the wrath of God. Uh, I think of Jonah. Jonah's a book in the the Old Testament, and uh, he, God says, I want you to go and share you know, this message with these people. I want to have a relationship with them, and I, I want you to be my messenger. And he says, no, and he bolts, and he takes off. And God doesn't pursue him with kindness. If you know the story, the first thing that God sends is a storm. Some of you might be in a storm, and it might be kind of one of your own making, But would you see that as God's wrath, that he's actually pursuing you? He wants you to understand that that his way, his rule, him being Lord is the way to go. He wants to be Lord and Savior. If you want to, if you feel like you're being drawn in, and if you want to make a decision to follow him, I'll invite you to pray this prayer with me. Dear Father, thank you that you love me. And you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ah, Okay, breathe deeply, relax. As we continue through Romans Uh, we're going to see that it's not just bad, it's ugly. (laughs) So brace yourselves for next week. No, please, come. We want to make sure that you understand that there is hope and there is purpose in what God is doing and what Paul is doing as he's writing this letter to these Romans. He has to strengthen this church. He's trying to put um, two different cultural groups onto the same page. And I tell you what, this puts you on the same page about the nature of the sinfulness of humanity, and the wrath of God against what is evil. As we close, let kindness lead you to repentance. Let also his wrath lead you to repentance. As God's wrath is being revealed to you, repent. That means to turn away from your false gods, your idols, and your sins, and to embrace him. Return to him as God Return to him as Lord, that this is his reality, that it's his design, and his design is supreme, that his word is truth. Let me pray for us as we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you pursue us.
in lots of different ways. We have the tendency to wander. And we see here again this picture of all the ways that humanity um, walks away from you, rejects you as Lord, and how we fool ourselves into so many things that become destructive and dangerous to us. Father, help us to have tender, listening hearts that would listen to your voice drawing us back to you. And God, for all the things that we face in life, for the challenges that are ahead of us, we ask that you would come alongside us, give us the courage to go on to face those big challenges in life. We know that you are an awesome, powerful, loving God. And we thank you that you come and took the cup of wrath for us. In your name we pray. Amen.